Since it was minted in 1933, one particular gold coin has been stolen, shipped to Egypt, uh, destroyed, almost destroyed by fire twice, and hidden for years. It is the double eagle $20 gold coin, an ounce of nearly pure gold. When it went up for auction just a few years ago, it sold for an amazing amount of money. It all started during the days of the Great Depression. During the worst years of the Depression, people were hoarding uh, their gold out of fear, and it was undermining the nation's financial system. As soon as uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt became president, by executive order, he took the United States off the gold standard and payment for anything by gold was now prohibited. Thousands of citizens exchanged their now worthless gold at, at banks for cash. Only problem is somebody forgot to tell uh, or send a memo to the U.S. Mint to stop making these gold coins, and they produced hundreds of thousands of these $20 gold coins until, uh, that is, until they got the memo and stopped. All of the uh, coins never left the mint. They were melted down, and that was the end of it, all except for ten of them, ten coins that the U.S. Mint's chief cashier had stolen. Eventually, after a number of years, the Secret Service were able to track down all of them but one. The tenth and only remaining double eagle had landed in the collection of the king of Egypt, <laughs> a man who had an interesting penchant for collections. He collected old aspirin bottles, used razor blades, stamps, and coins. In 1952, this last double eagle was to be returned to the U.S. after this Egyptian king died. It never made it. It somehow disappeared again. Forty-five years later, it showed up in the hands of a dealer who claimed to be the legitimate owner. He ended up going to court and battling the U.S. government over ownership of this coin. During the court battle, the coin was placed in what seemed to be a secure location, a vault at the World Trade Center. If you can imagine it, just days before 9-11, it was moved to Fort Knox where the government agreed to release the coin and sell it at auction and split the proceeds with the dealer. When it went up for auction, an anonymous telephone bidder won the bid and purchased the $20 double eagle coin for $7.6 million. Can you imagine? $7 million for a $20 coin you'll never spend. Why the incredible value? And frankly, why all the, the interest that has spanned now uh, nearly a century? Well, it's because it's, it's one of a kind. There's no other coin in the world like it. Rare things are treated differently than common things, aren't they? I believe it was the great theologian Mark Twain who once said, if stones were rare and diamonds commonplace, 
we would be wearing rocks for jewelry and throwing diamonds at stray dogs. It's true. Now, if you're like me and you wouldn't spend any more than $20 for a $20 coin, the truth remains, the more uncommonly rare something is, the more valuable it becomes. In 1 Corinthians 13, we have been exploring the rare sightings of genuine, authentic, uncommon love. We've contrasted it thus far with the loves of the world, the passion, the epithemia, the eros, the storge, the philia of the world, and we've discovered the rare beauty of agape. Uh, We have noted thus far the absolute necessity of this kind of love. In fact, if, if we have amazing character qualities and ministry dynamic, if we do not have love, we might as well all just grab a, a pair of symbols and make a lot of noise, right? By the way, I got to tell you, when I preached at Dallas Seminary, I preached these three messages, and I don't think it's ever happened in Chafer Chapel before, but I played the symbols. I played my symbol solo. They will forget me, but they will never, ever forget the symbols. No, actually, we had, a, we had a great, great time. Next, we begin to explore how love acts. And remember, verses 4 to 7 are not adjectives. They are 15 action verbs. This is not what love is. This is what love does. Now we've arrived at verse Five, where I was immediately struck by the simplicity of love's activity. Let's take a few more words here, action verbs tonight. Paul writes in verse 5, Love does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked. These phrases are so down to earth The description of the way love acts is so obvious here, isn't it? In fact, uh, one of my friends would say, this is not rocket surgery. That's deep. You hang with me. But listen, what is obvious to us is that this is rare. These actions are, are really like double eagle coins. Not only are they rarely seen in public, they are becoming more and more uncommon in the church today. They're hardly surfacing at all. These are expressions of selfless, willful, committed, true love. And as we work through these three verbs, let me just call them three uncommon or three rare expressions of love. The first is uncommon courtesy. Paul begins this verse by saying, love does not act unbecomingly. You could translate this, agape does not treat others rudely. One author translates it, love does not behave indecently. In the Corinthian church, by contrast, they were selfishly overindulging at the love feasts, even to the point of drunkenness, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty to 22. They were suing one another for all sorts of, of things in chapter 6, verses 1 to 7. They were hogging the floor and taking over the assembly with their own personal agendas, 1 Corinthians 14, 26. In fact, in verse 27, Paul even had to ask them to take turns speaking, and not all at once. 
as they clamored to be heard. This was becoming then this unbecoming nature of love more and more rare, this uncommon expression of courtesy. This is, ladies and gentlemen, frankly put, this is, this is tactfulness. Someone once said that tact is making people feel at home when you really wish they were. One author wrote that this verb for rude or unbecoming conveys the idea of of inappropriate dress, immodest dress, inconsiderate talk, disregard for other people's time, taking advantage of people, running roughshod over others' plans and interests, inappropriate behavior with the opposite sex. Basic discourtesy and rudeness and a general disregard for proper social conduct are all evidences of this one verb that Paul would consider the opposite of true love. By the way, this phrase can refer then to being inconsiderate of how your behavior might affect somebody else even in little things. This has to do with you know, the manners our moms tried to teach us. This is the, the courteousness, the sensitivity to other people. And, and Paul is, is speaking in such obvious language. He says, love is like that. It can come down to earth in such basic ways. Like just being sensitive in little things. Maybe even the way you use your cell phone. There's a good one. You know, do people really want to listen to your conversations in mine? In the line? In the grocery store? No, we don't, do we? I'll never forget a few years ago, sitting in the balcony of Moody Church. My wife and, and kids, we were listening to Ravi Zacharias preach. What a great, great preacher and speaker, and the place was literally packed with thousands of people in that historic Moody Church. We were sitting in the, in the balcony, which was really the last few seats left. I can remember about halfway through the sermon hearing a cell phone ring. Do you want to go ahead and check yours, by the way, while I'm in the middle of the story? I heard it ring somewhere in the audience, and I remember thinking that poor guy How utterly embarrassing this has to be for him. Right here in Moody Church, in in the middle of this thing where everything just sort of echoes all around that massive sanctuary, and you could hear it. I heard it ring a couple of times. And then we all heard, hello? We were in the balcony, and we could see this guy sitting in the middle of the sanctuary, gets up, clamors over people, yeah, yeah, you bet, right, and walks out the aisle talking on his cell phone. <laughs> I'm not going to say what, I, what comes to mind, because it might fit into one of the things I'm not supposed to do later, but can, can you... Can you imagine this? I mean, it's one thing for the phone to ring in church. It's, it's another thing to answer it. It's another thing to talk on it while you leave. 
That's unbecoming. Paul had that in mind when he wrote, speaking prophetically. True love is politeness. It has, it has boundaries. It's, it's consideration. And it's becoming all the more uncommon and rare. The verb can actually refer to uncouth speech. Listen, in common language, true love for another person means you are never off color. You never trample the sensitivities. You don't go out of bounds. True love for someone never delivers to them a dirty joke. You don't love them. If you act in that unbecoming way, there's no such thing as, oops, pardon my French. No such thing. You know, Paul, he's, he's kind of dressing us all down here, isn't he? With what I think is becoming more and more rare. It means you stay clean and wholesome. I found this interesting. I've I'm wading through, and it's taken me several years, the massive biography of Hudson Taylor, all of his letters, all the footnotes, everything. He uh, served about 100 years ago. He died, I believe, in 1905, but famous missionary to China. And while he was referring on one point to his missionary work in China, he was, he was by the way, especially known for his sensitivity to the Chinese culture. In fact, he was one of those radical missionaries that when he got over there actually grew a ponytail and adopted the Chinese dress of a Chinese teacher. Of course, he was, he was just held in disdain back in England until about you know, 30, 40 years into his ministry, they recognized that his sensitivity was bearing fruit. But he wrote this. This is an interesting and very controversial figure. We, we forget that part of him. But he wrote this, and I quote, Rude people will seldom be out of hot water in China. And though earnest and clever and pious, they will not accomplish much. Note this. In nothing do we fail more as a mission than in lack of tact and politeness. Can you imagine saying that the number one way we fail as a church is politeness. That's what he said about the China Inland Mission. This is the winsome witness then of a polite believer who will most often make profound impressions. Just being nice. Uncommon courtesy is synonymous with true love. Paul goes on in this text to refer, secondly, to what we'll just call tonight uncommon concern. He writes in verse 5, love does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. In other words, love does not insist on its own way. Paul kind of brings out this rare coin in public view of the Corinthians. In fact, he does it time and time again, and they just weren't getting it. He said in chapter 10, I try to please everyone in everything I do. How? Not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, 
It doesn't mean he shelved the truth. It simply meant that when he got around Paul, he'd tell you the truth in love, but he also wanted your best. He wanted your advantage. He wanted to promote you. He wanted to talk about you. He wanted to help you. That was Paul. He said in chapter 9, for though I am free, I have made myself a slave to all. A few verses earlier in chapter 10, he challenged the Corinthians with this, let no one seek his own advantage but that of another. Then here in chapter 13, love does not seek its own. There are two kinds of people in this regard, those who insist upon their own privileges and those who never quite forget their own responsibilities, those who are always thinking of what life owes them and those who never quite get over the fact that they owe life. Agape is rare because agape is uncommon concern for others. It is the selfless pursuit of another's blessing, and the reason it is so remarkable is you rarely see it in public. Selfless self-defacing, self-promoting, self-sacrificing love. But listen, seeking your own, which would be to flip this coin over, that's the law. that's, That's within your rights. The most natural and human thing is to stand up for your own rights, isn't it? Here then is that rare, unnatural act that goes against human feelings and reactions. This is the opposite of selfishness. I love the way Lenski penned this rather provocative statement in this particular commentary on this passage. He said this, if you can cure selfishness, you replant the Garden of Eden. True love is always unselfish. And how easy to say, right? Man, how hard to live out. That's why selfishness is as common as rocks. And unselfish living is as rare as a double-eagle $20 coin. In a devotional that I've been reading from this text by John MacArthur, he referenced two tombstones in England that perfectly illustrated this verb in 1 Corinthians 13.5. Here's one of them, this one in an English, small English cemetery. It reads, Here lies a miser who lived for himself and cared for nothing but gathering wealth. Now where he is or how he fares, nobody knows, and nobody what? Cares. This man evidently lived seeking his own advantage. In contrast, a tombstone in the courtyard of St. Paul's Cathedral in London reads, and I quote, Sacred to the memory of Charles Gordon, who at all times and everywhere gave his strength to the weak, his substance to the poor, his sympathy to the suffering, and his heart to God. I might add that it would be that last line that enables the previous lines. He gave his heart to God, which means he gave all of himself. He gave his affections, his longing, that would include his weakness and his sin and his fault and his failure. And this alone allows him then to turn around and give to others his strength and his substance and his sympathy. God enables agape. We pursue God. We give God our heart. 
and we're able to give our heart then to others in that way. Paul reminds us in Philippians chapter 4, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So if after this second uncommon expression you're thinking, I can't do it, I'll never make it, Paul says, sorry, you can through Christ. And, and Christ says it this way, without me, John fifteen five. You can do five of these 15 verbs. I mean, excuse me. You can do what? Nothing. No thing. Uncommon courtesy. Uncommon concern for others. Thirdly, uncommon control. Paul writes in this text, love does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked. You could translate this, love does not become cantankerous when disappointed. And now we're all going to throw up the white flag. I mean, this is the third tonight. When do we get a breather? Well, it gets worse when you find out what he means. The Greek word is transliterated to give us our word paroxysms, fits of anger. The word means an inward state of arousal. By the way, it can have a positive meaning, this provoking. Uh, The same word is used in Hebrews 10.24, provoke one another unto love and good works. So that word can have a positive impact. He's speaking of it in a negative, passive sense that it is not provoked in the form of irritation. You read this phrase, and immediately every one of us has to say, well, guilty. Who can live without being provoked, right? It does no good, by the way, in the face of this text to say, well, I lose my temper a lot, but, you know, it's over in a few seconds. So is a nuclear bomb. (laughs) Rare love then develops and grows into this demonstration of uncommon control. It's good to see it in public every once in a while, isn't it? One author I was reading wrote about being on a flight where two young children were sitting near him. You've been on those flights before? They were arguing and fussing and quarreling, and some of you moms are saying, yeah, they're probably my kids. No, they weren't. No, they weren't. Anyway, the flight attendant knew exactly how to handle them. She went over to their seats, and she smiled at them, and she said, what's all the squawking going on over here? The children grew quiet. She leaned over them and said in a serious, quiet voice, I must remind you, this is a non-squawking flight. (laughs) And it worked. Paul is effectively saying true love views life as a non-squawking flight. And he's telling us to us grown-ups. And since it takes two people to have a provocation with the kind that he has in mind, Paul is saying you are to refuse to become the second person. You read this phrase, love is not provoked, and you think, yeah, right, Paul. You you didn't expect me to take this literally. This verse is for people like apostles 
We're dead people. They can't be provoked. This is a verse for Paul. Now, again, the secret to uncommon control is not that you have some sort of amazing self-control. This is spirit, Christ control. Roy Lawrence said to be mastered by this love is the same as being mastered by Christ. Again, I go back to this, and let me make sure that I have said it clearly enough as we're halfway through these verbs. Agape is impossible. It is not difficult. It's impossible. That's why the fruit of the Spirit is first and foremost what? Love. The Lord had already begun to reveal this radical control, this refusal to be provoked in difficult situations when He preached His Sermon on the Mount. Very quickly, I want you to go back to Matthew 5. Would you just turn there very, very quickly? Matthew 5, verse 39. He brings up a couple of situations where you would get provoked, and He's teaching His disciples to show restraint and control that they will learn is the control of the Spirit of God. He says in verse 39, But I say to you, do not resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. I mean, this is the ultimate provocation, isn't it? If somebody slaps you on the right cheek, turn and let them slap you again. Now, most people misunderstand what Christ is saying. They think this is referring to to letting somebody punch you in the face and then turning and saying, you can have one more shot before I put you in the hospital. (laughs) No, that's not what Christ is saying. This is effectively the same demonstration of control that Paul will refer to in 1 Corinthians 13. Now, what I want to do, and I think the best way to teach this is to illustrate it physically. So what I'd like to do is, is... If I could, get a volunteer to come up here that I could hit. Okay, David, I saw that hand. Come on up here. Come on. I'm going to slap David, and we're going to watch his response. You doing okay? Should I take my jacket off? Okay. Now, if you look at your text, there's something very critical here. Jesus Christ specifically refers to being slapped on which cheek? Which cheek? That one. Now, most of the world happens to be right-handed, right? So, the only way that I can slap David on this cheek with this hand is to do this, right? (laughs) Come on, now you're exaggerating. This way right here, and then to turn the other cheek would mean that this person could give then another backhand. What this is referring to in Christ's day is one of the most insulting things you could ever do to anybody, is take your hand, which represents your authority and dignity, your personhood, and give someone the back of it. So Jesus Christ is saying, if somebody provokes you to that degree insults you, which is the point, be willing to be insulted again. And you would be willing, wouldn't you? 
Thank you very much, David. What great self-control. Thank you very much. To refuse to be provoked means a couple of things. First of all, it means you are willing to forfeit personal dignity. Now look down further, verse 41, another one that we wouldn't really understand. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him two. Again, the generation of of the Lord and of Paul would know immediately what he's talking about here. If somebody compels you to go a mile, go with him too. During these days, the law of the land gave the Roman soldier the right to impress any citizen or any alien, Jew or Gentile, into personal valet service. They could immediately impress anybody to carry their heavy gear. Hey, you, come up here carry my gear. And Jesus said, you know, the most gracious thing somebody could ever do is go with them a mile. Now, they had to anyway, but it would be gracious if they didn't mutter all along. Million, the, the word for, the Latin word for, for mile. And they, they considered a mile 1,000 steps. And so that person that's impressed into service, you can imagine, and they often did it audibly. They began to count off as they walked, carrying that heavy gear out of total frustration. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, nine hundred and ninety-eight, nine hundred and ninety-nine, a thousand! And they could throw it down. You have been inconvenienced enough. You've gone to the letter of the law, Jesus says, look at your text again, if you're compelled to go one mile, go to. Can you imagine the surprise of a Roman soldier and you telling him, look, I know you've impressed upon me to walk a mile, and I have to by law, but I want you to know I serve a higher law. It is the law of love, and love for Christ compels me to go another 1,000 steps with your gear. which meant that he would walk two miles out of the way and two miles back, four miles, never mind your afternoon plans. Love that refuses to be provoked is first willing to forfeit personal dignity and secondly willing to forfeit personal inconvenience, which makes this so rare and precious. Instead of provocation, it is procession for 1,000 more steps. You went one mile, you'll go two miles. This is where we get the phrase we still use to this day, going the extra mile. It came right out of there. This is indeed uncommon. It is rare love but it is undeniably real. See, he puts it down where we live and where we struggle. And so when we respond with a love of Christ, it is immediately obvious that we are controlled by the Spirit. Ladies and gentlemen, some guy is going to eventually die 
with a $20 gold coin in his safe. And what good did it do him but to give him somehow the impression that he had spent his money well and now owned something valuable because it was rare. Listen, the most valuable things in your life are indeed rare, but they are not kept in a safe. They are lived out in your life. Especially this rare thing called true love that demonstrates these uncommon expressions, uncommon courtesy, uncommon concern, uncommon control. Would any of us not agree with Paul that this is true love? Let me read you this illustration, and with this I close. Here's something to put into practice. A young father was in the grocery store pushing a shopping cart with his little son strapped in the front. Kid was about three years old, and he was a terror, fussing, irritable, crying. The other shoppers kind of gave the pair a wide aisle because the child was pulling cans off the shelf, dropping them on the floor, and reaching back, grabbing cans out of the cart and tossing them. And in spite of all this, this brave father continued to encourage his son with kind words. It's okay, Donnie. Don't worry, Donnie. Listen, Donnie, we'll be done in a few minutes. It's all right, Donnie. Uh, One mother who was passing by was so impressed by this young father's attitude, and she said, you certainly know how to treat your son with love. And then bending down to the little boy, she said, now what seems to be the problem, Donnie? Oh, no, the father said, he's Henry. I'm Donnie. Go and do thou likewise, huh? Let's pray. Father, this is where we live. This is where it's hard. This is where it's tough. This is where it matters. We had all the millions in the world. We could actually become collectors of very rare things. And yet without any money, but a lot of character and a lot of commitment and a lot of desire and trust in you, we can have the rarest of things, things that are indeed expressions of true love. We need your help to put these into practice for your name's sake. May we glorify you. In Jesus' name we pray.